Hi, I'm Samir Kaji, host of Venture Unlocked, the podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the business of venture capital. Today, we're thrilled to bring you my conversation with Justin Fishner Wolfson, co-founder and managing partner of 137 Ventures, a firm that provides both primary investments and customized liquidity solutions to high growth private technology companies. Before he started 137 Ventures in 2010, Justin was on the investment team at Founders Fund and now has built 137 Ventures to over $1 billion in total assets managed. On this week's show, we had a fun conversation that covered everything from fund product differentiation, why ownership is an overvalued heuristic, and the current state of the secondary markets. Now let's get into the episode to hear all of that and more. This week's episode is brought to you by Anduin. Anduin's platform makes fund management simple with streamlined fund operations, digitized fund subscriptions, and real-time status updates. As many investors know, traditional paper-based subscription agreements are costly, tedious, and error-prone, with up to 80% of submitted documents being incorrect or considered in poor order. This causes fund managers to be faced with a lack of visibility and an endless back and forth with investors, causing a poor onboarding experience for both the LP and the fund manager. This is where Anduin steps in as their investor onboarding workflow brings clarity and efficiency to fund subscriptions, which drastically reduce error rates and makes for happier LPs. For fund managers, the platform allows them to free up time so they can focus on what they do best, which is investing. For more information on Anduin or to arrange a demo, visit fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. That's fundsub.io forward slash venture unlocked. Hey, Justin, great to have you on the show and great to see you. Uh, it's always good to see you. Maybe one of these days we'll do it in person. I hope so. I want to get into a lot of things re- related to 137, but I, I did find out just recently that you skipped second grade. You were in Stanford at the age of 15, and then you joined Founders Fund at a really, really early age. So there's a lot of data out there in the, uh, in the public domain now about you. But tell us a little bit about your story and how you got into venture. I mean, Stanford really played a major role in me getting into venture. I didn't have a specific desire to get into venture, you know, back, you know, when I started, what ended up happening was a set of friends at Stanford, you know, introduced me to Peter, uh, you know, obviously at Founders Fund. And this was back when Peter was sort of investing his own money, you know, mostly part-time kind of post that post the sale of PayPal. And, it sort of became this thing, which is like, well, this seems interesting, but like no one's taking it that seriously. And, and then, you know, I kind of got a call in, in 2007 that was like, oh, you know, we're really going to start, you know, running founders from like a real venture business. Like, you know, you should, you should come and join. Like, and I thought to myself mostly that this was a really interesting set of people. So it wasn't, it wasn't specifically like, Hey, like I want to go do venture. It was, this is new. These are interesting people. And I think for everyone who knows, you know, certainly all the original founders fund folks, no one could deny that that was a very interesting set of people. Yeah. And, and so you joined and it was fun too, I think. And it was really the first fund where you're taking outside capital and investing it. I think it was what close to about a $200 million fund, if I'm, if I'm not mistaken. You were there for a couple of years, ultimately left to, to launch your firm now. What did you learn working with those really interesting people that help build the foundation of what you wanted to do with your new fund. Founders Fund was a great place because you got to remember that Founders Fund 2 was the first institutional fund, right? And that was in 2007. And before that, and I haven't checked this, actually, you might know the answer. I don't think there were any new funds probably started you know, since 2000, right? Maybe 99, because there was the whole bust and then there was just a dearth of new funds, right? And then after us, there was Andreessen. And then you know we've kind of gotten into this 
you know, pretty crazy proliferation of new funds, you know, especially at the sea level now. So, but like at that point in time, like there was, there was no one new. And so, you know, no one really knew how to build a, like a venture firm anymore, right? Like everyone who had done it had basically retired at that point, right? And you had partners at, you know, even good firms who just never gone through that process. We were just kind of figuring this stuff out. And, it, you know, Peter has, you know, a general, I think, philosophy of hire smart people and let them do things. And so everyone kind of pitched in in different ways and, and did different stuff. And, you know, I ended up bringing in the largest LP who ended up anchoring that fund. And that got me a ton of credibility inside the organization very quickly. And that allowed me to end up leading the the SpaceX investments, um, you know, back at Founders Fund. And, you know, that's obviously kind of been really the iconic investment of, of my career. Like no matter what other good things I, I, I might invest in, like SpaceX will always be SpaceX. And so, okay, so you, you did SpaceX, you, ra- you helped raise that first institutional fund, and it probably gave you a little bit of a, a training ground to raise your own fund. Uh, in, I think it was 2011. Yeah, 2011, yeah. The thing that a lot of people struggle with is when you're raising a fund, you know, especially a first-time fund, doesn't matter if you've had a great operating background or an angel background, fund one is always hard to raise. For you, it's kind of doubled because not only did you raise, you know, at Founders Fund 2007 and then, you know, of course, in, at 137 in 2011, but both of these models or the thesis or the stories were slightly different from what a lot of LPs are used to seeing. And the challenge is, is being differentiated, but not being so differentiated that it makes your product really, really hard to sell. How did you think about that? And what are sort of the, some of the learnings you had of selling a product that candidly is quite differentiated from the rest of the market? It's one of these things where I always tell people, you want to sell things that people understand how to buy, right? So if you're too different, it's just really hard. And even the challenges in the early days at Founders Fund was, you know, it was a slightly different story. It was a new team. It was a new fund, right? All of these things were somewhat new. And if you think about the incentive models, you know, for most LPs, not certainly all LPs, but, you know, if things go well, people say good job and maybe you, you, you get a, you have some economics on that, but usually not or very small. And if you invest in something that goes poorly, then you get fired, right? And, and so, you know, the incentive models, incentivize LPs, broadly speaking, to do things that are relatively safe. I mean, even within the venture community, right? You might argue venture is not that safe. And generally speaking, it's kind of a mediocre asset class. But if you can invest in the, you know, the top decile, top quartile, like you actually get outsized returns. The, the challenge, I think, is people do what you incentivize them to do. And LPs are not particularly incentivized to take a lot of risks. Um, so you do want to build a product that's differentiated because I do think LPs really care about that, right? They want to invest in something that they feel is different and that has a sustainable edge. But at the same time, it's got to fit in the bucket, right? Most, you know, large institutional players have buckets. And, you know, we've struggled with this at 137. It's like, if, if you tell a slightly different story, then they're not sure what bucket to put you in. And that can be a real challenge. So how do you find that cadence where you can fit into one of those buckets? Because I think you're 100% right, especially when you look at the institutional LPs that are looking to buy IBM. Because if you provided two or three X, great. It sort of kind of moves the needle, but if you, the bigger you are, the less it's going to move the needle. But if it goes really, really poorly, that person's job can be on the line. And so it's how do you sell something in a way that feels safe, but also just corresponds to a certain bucket? How did you think about that sales process? At the beginning, you know, we were picking the early adopters, right? Whether or not it was a founder's fund or 137, right? Like there are a subset of institutional investors there, there's some really great endowments. There's some really great family offices who, 
you know, don't necessarily track to, I would say, the broader industry and really are focused on building, you know, that next generation of managers, right? The, the challenge, you know, specifically in venture is generational change is, is incredibly hard to, to do successfully. And so, you know, even if the, the great firms of, you know, yesteryear are not necessarily the great firms of tomorrow and you have to actively work to kind of rebalance your portfolio. And I think, you know, a good number of LPs understand that. And they're, they're looking for new managers. They're looking for new stories. They're looking for people who've got a different perspective. And those are the people you need to find, right? Like when I talk to, you know, GPs who are, you know, even if they're on a second or third fund, right? Like it's still, you need to find people who are willing to go a little bit out on a limb to, you know, try something different, right? And so it's about finding your audience. And that audience, you know, in, in some sense always, is always shifting, right? Like the people that we raised from back in 2007 or 2011, you know, they built mature portfolios now. You know, they're more they're more willing to take risk than I would say a lot of LPs are per se. They're still, you know, they already have all the managers. Like they have a good portfolio. They're not necessarily looking to add 20 new managers anymore, right? They'll add one or two, but you need to find kind of that next generation of institutional LPs who are building from scratch or replacing a, you know, mediocre portfolio. You're hitting on something that's really interesting. I, I think a lot of the um, endowments, pensions, the, let's say typical institutional investors, many of them do have their dance cards pretty full now. So they've built mature portfolios. In order to get a new manager, it has to be highly, highly differentiated from the rest of the portfolio or somebody in their existing portfolio churns out because of performance. I also think that you, you mentioned something that to me is really interesting is that generational planning and succession is really hard. A firm that did really well in, from 2000 to 2010 maybe completely a completely different product today but it also goes to products change over time as fund sizes get get bigger and bigger and bigger and so just because somebody can execute at a 100 million dollar fund they may not be able to execute that same strategy at the same level of success at 500 million you've now raised four funds institutional funds they've all grown um, not dramatically but they've grown how have you thought about both in terms of thinking about upsizing your funds over time. And what were the considerations that you thought of as, as you're going and building bigger and bigger fund sizes to deploy? Maybe it's a little counterintuitive, but like, I actually care what's the smallest check that we can write, right? Because that sort of determines when you can engage with someone, right? If the smallest check you can write is 100 million, you, you can't talk to companies that have a valuation that's 100 million, right? Like it just doesn't make a lot of sense, right? And, and so if we can write checks that are, you know, half a million, you know, million dollars, like we can engage with people at a level that starts to build a relationship that we can scale over time. You know, if, if we raised a billion dollar fund, I think you just wouldn't be able to keep track of that many investments. You wouldn't be able to invest the time in those relationships. And like, it would change how you'd have to construct the portfolio. So, you know, one piece of it is, I think, what's the smallest check you can write? And then the other thing that, you know, we've sort of thought about is, because we've taken a different angle, we're not kind of trying to lead primary rounds. We're not trying to elbow people out. You know, we don't necessarily want to have so much capital where we're, we're forcing founders, executives to make hard choices to include us or not include us, right? So if you're trying to deploy a lot of capital, the question is, what's the size of the opportunity that you're investing in? And are you forcing other people to choose between you and other folks? And look, you know, if you have good relationships, you're going to win enough of those times that it's going to be fine. But maybe you just want to avoid the conflict, right? Like just, just do something that's at a size where people don't have to make hard decisions and then you can always win, right? Like they'll always let you in. And I think that's, that's sort of 
how we scaled our fund sizes. I like the uh, point of what is the smallest fund, I'm smallest check size that makes sense where you can engage with the type of people you want to invest in. But let, let's just go through your investment model for a second. I, I don't know that everybody knows 137 Ventures well, but you have uh, a product that effectively does liquidity s- solutions for secondaries. And you also do some primary investments in some of those companies. Tell us a little bit about the actual investment thesis. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back to how we started the firm, right? So, you know, Alex and I met when we were at Founders Fund. You know, I was getting a lot of calls kind of back 2010, 2011 from, you know, college friends who ended up at Facebook, right? And if you kind of remember that time, I think Goldman did that $50 billion round, I think it was 2010, if memory serves. And so a lot of people, you know, they, they had a lot of money on paper, but no actual money, right? So they couldn't buy a house, they couldn't pay off their student loans. And, and, and I just got a, a whole bunch of calls from people kind of around the same time asking, you know, do you know anyone who will lend me some money? I have all this Facebook stock. And I didn't, but, you know, I, I called some of the places you, you, you know, you used to work, right? I called First Republic, I called, you know, Silicon Valley Bank, I called, you know, WTI. And not only, you know, was nobody in that business, but no one wanted to be in that business. So it wasn't, you know, my, my thought wasn't, gosh, I should really go jump in and start a fund to do this. It was like, where can I send all of my friends? And, you know, when nobody wanted to talk to them, I was like, well, this seems like a silly thing. There's an opportunity to invest in great companies that are going to end up staying private for much longer, right? My view was Facebook was the start of a longer term trend, not some weird anomaly. And that, that used to be an argument we had now, now everyone more or less agrees with this. And, you know, we built a fund around, you know, helping founders and executives get liquidity. And we're we're pretty agnostic how we do that. But, you know, we've got a bunch of, you know, loan structures that tend to be more tax efficient for people. We'll buy some shares. We'll do some primary investing. You know, for us, it's, it's about being, you know, agnostic about how you invest in great companies, right? Like that's, that's all we really care about. But there are many fewer people who are doing you know, what we're doing in terms of providing liquidity. So I'd rather be in that part of the market where you got to fight with fewer people. You're right. I mean, I, I think it's fairly uh, consensus that companies are going to stay private longer. We are seeing more liquidity with things like SPACs and direct listings. And, and maybe some of that does shorten the time or truncate the time for companies to actually go public. Maybe, maybe not. We'll see. But what have you seen in the secondary markets specifically over the last 10 years in from when you started back in 2011 to now? And how do you view the market? Is there anything in particular that you look on a go forward basis that you think is going to change? Or does it really just kind of stay the same as as what it is right now? I, I think things move around, you know, on the margins, right? There's been a wave of liquidity, although keep in mind, a lot of these companies, you know, are 15 plus years old. So Yes, there's a lot of liquidity, but I'm not sure it's bringing down the average in some super meaningful way. Uh, but even if the average were to come down a little bit, I don't think that changes much. A lot of the things that are driving the time it takes for companies to go public are, you know, some combination of regulatory, you know, shifts that happened 10, 15 years ago. And I think the expectations of the public markets, I mean, that may change one day, but it's not going to change any day soon. The thing that's happened over the last 10 years in the private markets, they've just gotten so much bigger. Right. Like it's, it's just, I mean, they probably scaled by a factor of a hundred, right? Maybe even more because the sheer number of companies that have stayed private and the sheer amount of, you know, value that's being created in the private markets. And one thing that I think the industry has 
almost entirely come around to is that liquidity helps align incentives for bigger outcomes. And I think this ties into your comment about fund sizes, right? Fund sizes, broadly speaking, have gotten bigger. And because of that, you need bigger exits. And people realize that if you help founders and executives get some liquidity, that they will play for much bigger outcomes, right? They'll take more risk because they only have one company in their portfolio and investors have many. And so the investors really need them to go for bigger outcomes. And, you know, that's not necessarily economically rational if you have, you know, no money and student debt and no house and you've got a kid coming, right? Like these, these you know, these things would cause most quasi-normal people to take an exit that would put a lot of a lot of cash in their bank account. And yet I've watched people turn down huge, huge, huge sums of money, you know, because they happen to have a bit of liquidity. And, and I think that the industry has come around to this fact that liquidity isn't bad. It's not people who don't believe in their company. It's mostly helping people pay off student debt or medical things or buy a house. And that's what allows them to go for really big exits. I agree with that 100%. And, and certainly, there, there has to be some parameters in terms of how much somebody sells of their position and things like that to make sure that there's continued alignment. You mentioned the secondary market has increased in size. And we've seen that just from my seat, seeing so many people actually buy secondaries. You, know, you have crossover funds doing it. We have platforms like Forge, firms like yourself that are providing interesting liquidity solutions for employees and and a prior shareholders, maybe even investors. What about from the inefficiency standpoint? How efficient are the secondary markets right now relative to the, where they were maybe five or six years ago? I think they're very equivalent to the primary markets. I mean, in, in some sense, if you're a company trying to raise a seed round, you have to go figure out who the investors are. If you're trying to raise an A, it's a different set of investors, you know, B, different set of investors. And, you know, in the secondary market, I think it's the same sort of thing, right? You have to go figure out who who are the people who focus on this. And there's always going to be people who dabble, right? There's series A investors who also do Bs. There are people who do, you know, series E investing, but will also do some secondary, right? So there, there are people who will do both or multiple things. I don't think the market is particularly efficient. I'm not sure I would describe the primary market as particularly efficient either. You know, there are more people who, you know, there are more firms who are doing secondaries than there were 10 years ago. I think more people have followed us, you know, into this part of the market. Although in all honesty, I think the number of people who are doing it, you know, that, you know, that set firms to do this is probably, it is scaled less than the market has scaled. And there are a lot more people who have ended up kind of on the earlier stage side of the primary world. So it's been interesting that, that, that like it hasn't balanced. Um, more people have just ended up doing seed series A investing, which I think is surprising. So, so it's probably less efficient in the secondary sense, but you know, all these markets are kind of designed to be inefficient. And that's true. I mean, if, if you think about some of the seed in Series A, it's an opaque and sometimes very complex market where there's so much subjectivity. And, and sometimes with secondaries, it's intentionally inefficient as people look at negotiating the uh, right type of deals for themselves. You left in Founders Fund in 2011. That was like the beginning of the bull market. It's been really 11 years-ish since it started. We're seeing valuations in the, in the public uh, markets really, really high in terms of valuations relative to fundamental financial analysis, at least historically. I don't want to disagree with you because I do agree with you. But I do if you look back at some of like the like the Bessemer Cloud Index and stuff like that, there have been points where like SAS multiples were even bigger than they are today. And they've come back down and there there's been, you know, there have been peaks and valleys along the last 10 years. So I don't think we're in a valley at the moment. That that's definitely true. 
but there have definitely been points in time that have also been quite high. Those are all fair points. And I do want to dig into that a little bit more in how it affects your business model today. You are investing primarily in companies that have reached breakout phase. And in today's world, of course, these companies are getting more capital and higher valuations. And I, you know what I'm really curious about is how does that play into your underwriting today in ensuring that for whatever risk you're taking, you truly are getting compensated in a way that's appropriate for the investors and really takes into account some of the, uh, the future risks that could happen with some of these companies if things don't go right. I think at the core, you know, we're focused on finding companies that we feel like have a long-term, you know, differentiated and defensible business model, right? So I think the defensible piece is super important because, you know, over time, what you don't want is margins to get competed away and then multiples to compress, and then you don't end up, it, it turns out not to be a good investment. And so there are, there's a subset of companies that we feel like are much more durable and, if you invest in them, you can really get the value of compounding over time, right? So, so that's like the core piece. And you know, look, there's a there's like a set of relatively obvious business models, right? Like there's network effects, there's information asymmetries, there's economies of scale, right? There are lots of things that you know that drive that kind of long term defensible business model. And so, like that at the core, I don't think has changed. I mean, in terms of you know, in in terms of underwriting specific companies. You can always look at the high-profile deals that get done at prices that don't necessarily make any sense. And sometimes those are great companies and sometimes they're not, right? And and you can have a great company that's just horribly mispriced and it's hard to invest in, right? I think that's that's one thing. But that's also just like, you know, individual examples. We've still found great investments that are not being priced this way. And I think that, you know, not every single company is being priced this way. So you've got to pick and choose a little bit. And even there are some things where, I think when we first invest in Flexport, like I don't really understand. Like people gave us a hard time about like the multiples, and I was like, "Go, go look at what freight forwarders trade at, and look at how fast these guys are growing." And all you really have to do is believe that they can run a, you know, pretty decent freight forwarding business, and ignore the fact that they have any technology, and it, it should be fine. But like people didn't really, didn't really buy into that. So, you know, just because there's some view that things are trading at high multiples, like maybe they are, maybe they aren't. I think the details matter the kinds of companies matter. So like if you can really invest in great companies that are going to compound over extended periods of time, you don't want to be too price sensitive. I mean, there's a limit to that statement, but you know, 20%, no, no one knows whether or not you're, you know, you're correct within 20%. There's just no way. That's been proven true over and over again. It, it, it does then go into this other aspect of what I wanted to uh, to ask you about, which is really around your own portfolio. I have heard, and I know in talking to you that you've always subscribed to something that is much more concentrated in nature. It's not like you have 30 or 40 companies in your portfolio. It's 10 to 15. Why did you go that direction of fewer companies, potentially higher ownership in those companies? And then I guess tangentially, like how do you make the determination when you actually do a primary investment on top of some of these secondary liquidity options that you provide? I think we're not trying to build an index, right? I mean, we, you know, if you, if you have 100 or 200 companies, you know, that that's mostly a venture index. And that may not be a bad thing, right? I think some people have done that, you know, pretty successfully. But if you want the most exposure to companies that are doing well, then you end up with a more concentrated portfolio. And so we usually have kind of a dozen core positions in a fund. 
and we're trying to add, you know, more to the positions that are doing, you know, really well. And I think there's a logical flywheel, right? Like we already have existing relationships. We already know management. We've seen them forecast things and seen where they're, you know, both correct and incorrect. And you get comfortable with what people tell you. And so it's much easier to add to those positions. And you've got, you know, much better information. You've got better relationships. So, you know, that's, you know, that's sort of how we thought about adding to those positions in each fund. And that just ends up with a more concentrated portfolio. But I think, Matt, you know, we still, we still have some diversification, right? If any one company, you know, doesn't live up to expectations, it's not going to take down the whole fund. Uh, I think that's actually more of a risk management thing from a GP perspective than an LP perspective. If you put all the money in one company and it works, your LPs will kind of complain, but not really. If it doesn't work, then you'll be out of business. And so in some sense, it's really much more, you know, from a, from a GP perspective, how much risk are you willing to take, right? You know, we want to have a diversified portfolio, but the, the marginal value of, you know, going from one to two is incredibly high, right? That, that's a lot of diversification value. The marginal value of going from 99 to 100 is, is really not that high. And so, you know, if you kind of run the math, 10 to, 10 to 15 companies get you most of the value um, and kind of let you provide more alpha. So if you're doing 10 to 15 companies, let's say you raise a $400 million fund and making that up, this is more of a hypothetical. It sort of means that your minimum check into any given company has to be a, a certain size, or it just really doesn't make sense as part of a core position. How do you make that trade-off of, you may see these amazing companies that you think are great outlier type of opportunities, but because you know you say, hey, concentrated portfolio, I need to get X amount of ownership. I have to pass on some of these deals where I can't get that check size in. How have you looked at that trade-off? And are, have there been situations where you've, you've said, even though I can't right now get the, the level of capital I want to into this company, I'm still going to do it with the hope that we can upsize our position in, in future rounds? Yes. So I, I really don't care about ownership percentage. I think the industry has focused on this in a super weird way. Ultimately, I think this came about because people were doing math about what percentage of an exit you need to own relative to fund size, and then you know building, you know constructing a portfolio that way. A lot of that math has changed, quite frankly, as outcomes for companies have gotten much bigger. And so, having a smaller ownership percentage isn't necessarily a problem. And the way that we tend to think about stuff is much more about dollars at work, right? How much money can you invest in the company? Whether or not you own half a percent of the company or ten percent of the company. It doesn't really matter. The question is, how much money do you have at work invested in that company relative to your fund size, and what's your, you know, what's your expected return on that? So I think we think about it a little bit differently than the rest of the industry. The piece that matters, I think, to us is we want to build relationships with people early, and so we're willing to write relatively small checks and then scale pretty aggressively. And, and so, like, if there was a late stage company where you could write a check for, you know, five million dollars, which would be like a, a fine check for us to write, broadly speaking, but I was convinced that we would never be able to add more to it, I would be disinclined to do that. You know, on the other hand, if it was a you know an earlier stage company that maybe, you know, wasn't totally in our strike zone because, you know, it's just it's just relatively early, you know, to write a smaller, you know, half million, million dollar check and then just just kind of build that relationship and aggressively follow on, I think we would be super willing to do that. So the circumstances depend a little bit, but you know, that's why I think I said earlier, it, it, it really, it, you, you want to think about fund size because it determines the smallest size checks you can write. And that determines whether, you know, what the pipeline can look like. And this goes in, in a lot of asset categories, probably more so in venture. And we talked a little bit about how LPs think about things, how 
people get anchored on these ideas that were formed in many cases, like 30 years ago, right? And say, hey, you know, we need to get 15 or 20% ownership or fundamentally it doesn't make sense. And they end up passing on a lot of great deals. And I've seen personally situations where people pass on a deal because they felt they needed to get that ownership within a really, really narrow band and missed on like a Coinbase or some of these massive outlier companies that would have returned their funds multiple times over. So we talk a lot about investing here and your thesis and how you think about things like portfolio construction. We went back and talked about the first fundraise. You're over a billion in AUM now. You have a big team. The one thing that I've realized over two decades of working with venture funds is it's really hard to create generational firms that are durable and have defensible moat and continue to be persistent in their returns uh, over a long period of time. What have you found over the last 10 years building the firm as the toughest things to get right? I think hiring is, you know, broadly speaking, probably one of the most important things. It's one of the hardest things to do. And if you get really good at it, then, you know, it's, it's a, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. So, you know, that's the most important thing. I mean, we've been doing this for 10 years now, and I think we've only, you know, recently kind of earned the right to think about, you know, time as not the next fund, but like, you know, the next 10 years. And, you know, that's somewhat freeing and somewhat more complicated, right? It's, it's sort of a transition point for us. You know, a lot of firms, you know, they bring in junior people and it's kind of like a, you know, two-year rotation, right? You come, come join us, learn a little bit, and then, you know, please leave. Right. And, and I think we've come to the conclusion that for us, what we really want to do is we want to bring people in. We want to invest in those people. We want to help those people grow and continue to promote them and end up with a, you know, career path where they can end up, you know, being a full investing partner. And I think that the benefit is that you get to know people a lot more, right? So you, you know, their skills, you know, their strengths, you know, their weaknesses. And I think it also attracts better junior talent because, there's a place for them to go, right? They don't have to leave in two years, right? I think we want to invest in people for the long term, And that's that's sort of, I think, the key to building the infrastructure to be kind of a, a multi-generational firm. And, you know, ultimately, I think the piece that comes along with that is you need, you need the, the folks who were, you know, there for a long time to give up responsibilities and economics, you know, for the next generation of people. Because if, if they won't, then people will simply leave and go start their own funds, right? And I think that's how generational change has been dealt with in this industry for the most part, right? People people even go start the next thing. And it's even more true right now when you can have somebody that's an associate or principal at one of these firms or maybe even a partner that doesn't have the same level of economics as the, uh, the managing partners and go off and start their own fund. And this happens fairly frequently. What are the things you do from a cultural standpoint to ensure that you don't have talent atrophy. I mean, we wanted like a pretty open organization so people see all parts of the business. I mean, that was one of the things that I really appreciated at Founders Fund was that, you know, I, I saw the fundraising part of the business. I saw the investing part of the business. I saw the, the back office part of the business. And, you know, having people kind of be involved in everything as opposed to just being really siloed. I think for the most part, people appreciate that. You know, if you if you kind of go with maybe the more traditional model where it's like you have one partner and one associate and one assistant and like each person does their own thing and they meet up once in a while to talk about deals. I think it's less interesting. I think people get they're less engaged with the whole firm. So I think that's one thing that we try to do. Part of it's just 
you know, helping people always get to like the next challenge. So it stays interesting. You don't want it to get boring for people. So as they're developing skills, you, you want to give them new responsibilities. So that way they can be trying different things. Um, so we try to do that. And, you know, obviously I think promoting people, you know, titles and money are generally appreciated as well. So, you know, I think you need to be cognizant of, you know, where people are in their career path and kind of help them achieve what they're, what they're trying to achieve. It sounds like if I'm hearing this right, it is about creating this transparent type of organization where people have the opportunity to be exposed to all parts of the business. You then actually probably have them building these really interesting skills. You also see what their strengths and weaknesses are, and you give them a path where they can be a bigger and bigger part of the organization on a go forward basis. And you've always told me that you want to build a firm that far outlasts you. When you're done doing it, 137 Ventures is on Fund 15 and 16, and the next generation of people are leading it. But what's the toughest, I guess, and hardest lesson you've learned in running a firm that may not be completely obvious to people that are early in their in their firms? I, I mean, the people are always the hardest thing, right? Like people are people, they don't change. And you always, you always end up dealing with people issues, right? So, so that's always hard. I'm not sure that's, I'm not sure that's a secret. I think people sort of know that, but you know, the other piece is everything kind of takes longer than you expect. And even when you know that it still takes longer than you expect. And even after you've experienced that, you, you still can't adjust accordingly because things still take longer than you expect. And look at this very weird dynamic that's almost impossible to escape. So, so I think those two things are, are sort of true. And, you know, there's also a certain degree of, of letting go, right? At some point, the organization, you know, becomes bigger than any one person. Like when you start a company, right, whether or not it's a, you know, venture firm or a tech company or whatever, like it's a very small number of people at the beginning. Maybe it's one, maybe it's two, maybe it's three, right? But at some point, the organization gets so big that like no one person can know everything anymore. I think that's like a tough transition to make. Right. Eventually, you know, the organization sort of is a self-sustaining thing. And, you know, if you want to build a firm that's going to kind of outlast the original people, you, you need to accomplish that. If you don't want that or you don't care, then, I mean, you don't have to think about this at all. Right. You just have to, you know, focus on making good investments for the time that you're, you know, that you're investing and that's it. But there's a lot of value in building. Right. Like, I think brands are very powerful in this industry. I think you know, networks are very powerful. And, you know, the longer you've been around, the longer you can invest in your brand, the better people that you can hire, the bigger your network, these things, you know, have, have very positive feedback loops. And so there is an advantage to investing to build like a multi-generational firm, because ultimately, if 137 exists for another 40 years, right? I mean, and people should talk about us like they talk about Sequoia because there are very few firms that exist for 40 years, right? Like that's like that's like a very hard thing to do, right? So just the sheer act of doing it means we must have been successful, right? Because otherwise we would have gone out of business. Doing that obviously means you have to have a lot of returns that come fund after fund, but it's usually a function of getting those things right. Can you get the right people? Can you keep those right people? Can they approximate what you did in the early days to keep the ship uh, steering in the right direction? And it's tough. I mean, there's very few firms that have been around for 30, 40, 50 years. And now if you look at some of the uh, the last like 15 years, we've seen 2,200 new firms plus that have formed since 2007. Like you, you mentioned in 2007, like there was, you're right, there was nothing between 2000 and 2007. And now it's a new flood. And if I ask 100 LPs and, and say, give me your top 50 managers out there, 
it's going to look very, very different than it did 10 years ago. Now, Sequoia and Benchmark and Lightspeed and a few others, will, you know, they continue to be at the, at the top of the stack. But we've seen a flood of people that are now in that same sort of category at different parts of the market, whether that be a first round capital, a union square, initialized. The key, though, is how do you maintain that? And I think there's some firms that have done a fabulous job, but it is a really, really hard thing to do. I think it's one that requires constant thinking and iterating and really building that cultural foundation around you have to sort of make up your mind. Do you want to be a generational firm? And if you do, you need to employ the type of things that you do to ensure that that can happen, or at least you give yourself a shot for that to happen. I 100% agree with you. And you touched on how many new new firms have been built. And, And I think people look at these things and say, you know, wow, this is like a crazy number. I mean, and to some extent it is, but if people were to think back, you know, 10, 15 years ago, most of this investment was actually happening in the public markets. You know, there's just been this kind of secular shift from, you know, public market dollars to private market dollars, right? There are no small to mid cap tech companies anymore in the public markets. Like there, there are no $600 million public tech companies, right? There used to be huge amounts of funds that were dedicated to investing in those companies in the public markets. And I don't think any of them exist anymore, or they've certainly changed what they're doing. And so in some sense, all that's happened is that, you know, that money and those, those jobs have moved into the private markets and venture, which is different. And there are certain consequences to liquidity versus illiquidity. The, the fact that companies have stayed private for so long, I think necessitates the amount of people and capital that we're sort of seeing in the market, you know, as a, as a broad trend, right? I mean, on any given year, I actually don't think it's that much. I mean, if you look at the total amount raised by venture firms, and let's put aside the hedge funds, it's $80 billion a year right now. And if you look at the amount that's going into companies and in a, in a venture-backed companies in a year, it's such a small fragment of the, the public market, market capitalization. You look at that, you also look at the disproportionate value these companies are providing in, to the US in terms of overall economic value, job value. And it's hard to really make the, I would say, logical debate that venture is too big. You know, I just don't see that. Now, could you have made the case 20 years ago, pre-iPhone, when everyone was accessing the internet through a dial-up modem? Sure. I think we're in in a very, very different time. And you're right. There is no Amazon going public at $300 million. So we're in a different world. So, and I might be the minority, maybe, maybe not. I think everyone makes a lot of the headline number, but when you actually look at the size of the asset category and you look at the public market, we're, it's a small decimal. Absolutely. I mean, I think there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of things that I, I think are just sort of funny when you, when you put them on a sense of scale, right? Like I've never understood, right? People make sort of a big deal that, you know, we do secondaries in, in venture, right? But people don't ever like stop to notice that 99.99999 percentage points of of transactions in the public markets or secondaries, right? Like, in fact, the public market guys think putting, you know, primary investing, which they would actually call secondary, is quite, is somewhat odd, right? Like, like, there are all these things that like people think are odd until they just kind of reframe the question a little bit. And what they think is, you know, common is actually the odd thing, right? It's it's like, it's just, it's very interesting to me. I totally agree with you. Let's uh, maybe uh, end with our heat check session, which I basically ask you three rapid fire questions. The first one is now that you've been an investor for 14 years, what's the most counterintuitive thing you've learned in investing? 
yeah, I'm, I'd actually probably go back to to something we were talking about earlier, right? Like, I don't think ownership percentage matters, right? I think a lot of people are focused on ownership percentage. I, I think it causes people to miss opportunities that they shouldn't miss, right? You know, go back to Peter's initial investment uh, in Facebook, right? Like a lot of people turned down that deal because they wanted, you know, 20% ownership and Peter was willing to take 10% ownership. Well, well, obviously, you know, if you believe the company is going to be a $100 billion company, right, which was the IPO, then who who cares, right? Like, like this is, this is not, this is not the correct calculation. So like this focus on ownership percentage, I think is, is just wrong, right? Like it's a heuristic that's been overused, right? Um, so that's, Maybe that's maybe my counterintuitive example. I, I think more more people are coming around to that understanding that you can't be so pedantic when you think about things like that. And you have to assess the current environment that you're in and the future environment that you're going into. And people did miss, as I mentioned, companies that are now 10, 20, 30 billion in size because they needed to get 18% ownership instead of 11%. I've had so many people on the show that have said, hey, I missed it because I was way too focused on this thing, missed the greatest deal. If I have conviction in a deal and I think I, it can reach venture size returns for me and returning my fund, maybe multiple, it really doesn't matter. Um, now there's limits, of course, and you don't want everything where you're only getting 10% and then you get 1% on everything. So there, there are obviously limits. It does speak to the fact that you need to be flexible and have some versatility in how you think about things like that. I think the, the thing you hit on is cost of capital, right? Like the question is, will this investment hit my cost of capital based on my portfolio construction? And like that ultimately kind of boils down to an ownership percentage because you can't assume all companies are going to be $300 billion outcomes because that seems very challenging. But that, that does also doesn't mean that like you have to assume that everything's going to be a $500 million outcome either, right? Like you need to look at these companies and, and make a judgment call. Well, speaking of judgment calls, I mean, you've obviously looked at a lot of companies, you've invested in some great companies like Wish and Flexport, and then going back to even the, the Founders Funds Day, you know, looking at some, someone like SpaceX, but invariably you've missed on deals too. And everybody misses on deals for one reason or another. I always like to ask the question to investors, is there a deal out there that you miss? The thing I care about is not necessarily the deal, but whether there was a deal out there that you look back and say, not only did I miss it, but I learned a really, really valuable lesson from. You know, Stripe might be a, might be a good example for us, right? It was like always a business that we thought was really good, but it always traded at what we thought were kind of crazy prices. You know, the question is like, what what did we miss in that context? And I think I think the answer is, you know, there's a subset of businesses that you don't necessarily want to think about them as the current price to fundamentals. You really want to look at what the future of the business can be and discount from there. And, you know, I mean, there are limits, obviously, right? You can't, you can't overpay by, by crazy amounts, but like the fact that Stripe, you know, is just, has just been compounding for so many years at such high rates overcomes, you know, most of the, at the time, seemingly high prices. And so you need to be thoughtful about companies that really have the ability to kind of compounded high rates for incredibly long periods of time, which I think fits Stripe quite well. So that, that's probably like one of those, you should have just paid more kind of conversations. You did work with Peter for a few years, and you've probably worked with a lot of really interesting investors, both in venture and maybe even outside venture, given your business model. Is there an investor out there that you've spent time with or have followed particularly inspires you, or at least has inspired the way you think? And if so, who is that and, and what about them? 
You mentioned uh, you know, Fred Wilson at USV, and this is maybe just a comment about the whole firm, which which is somewhat of a comment about him, quite frankly. But you know, those guys consistently stand by companies and go above and beyond in spots where most people in the industry would not. They just do right by people whenever they're in tough situations, and they'll and they'll do things which they may not be in their best interest short term, but I think are absolutely in their best interest long term by doing the right thing. I mean, that's, I think, I think that's something to aspire to that people, you know, to want to do it. And then two that, you know, people will, will recognize you for it. Cause I think that's, it's good for everyone in the industry long-term. And it, it seems like a really obvious thing in, in terms of just do right by people, take the long-term view, but it's actually amazing how infrequent that actually is and how many people practice very short-term things and actually don't think about the consequences of every single interaction, every single opportunity to show somebody that you're supportive and what that means multiple funds later. And they've obviously done amazing. So it's a great firm, um, great people, obviously. Justin, this has been a lot of fun. I'm, I've am i always uh, enjoyed uh, you know our conversations and seeing the, uh, the course of 137 from when I met you, which I think is when you started Fund One, to seeing it right now. It's been great to see the evolution and great to have you on the show. Appreciate the time, Samir. Looking forward to catching up in person one of these days. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Venture Unlocked. We really hope you enjoyed this week's episode with Justin. To learn more about him and 137 Ventures, be sure to go to Apple Podcasts or Spotify where you'll find detailed notes on the show. While you're there, please leave us a rating and a review as it really helps us out. And hit the subscribe button in order to get each and every Venture Unlocked episode as soon as it's released. Finally, make sure to sign up at ventureunlock.substack.com to get the latest on the podcast and my latest posts on the venture landscape.